Spoiler alert, when this podcast talks about the books, it talks about it in the context of the entire The Song of Ice and Fire series. And when it does so about the television shows, it does so in the context of the most recent episode. You've been warned. Before the Dragon, a podcast dedicated to George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and the HBO Game of Thrones prequels franchise. Welcome back to another edition of Before the Dragon podcast. We're on Mondays only for a little while while I'm trying to swim through school, but welcome to another Monday edition. We're looking at A Song of Ice and Fire and the Game of Thrones franchise, whatever that entails, be it prequels, spinoffs, whatever. We'll cover it as it comes up. And at some point, I hope to get a little bit of a conversation going about what we know about the pilot that was shot so far, but uh, that's for another time. Right now, we're looking at Fire and Blood, covering two chapters this time around, Under the Regents, The Hooded Hand, and Under the Regents, War, Peace, and Cattle Shows, that's chapters 20 and 21 of the book. Just a reminder that we talk about these things in the context of all books and in the context of the television series that we've seen so far as well. You've been warned. Remember, if you want to contact this podcast with any feedback regarding any of these chapters, feel free to go to mattsaudioblog.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog.com. There's a contact form that you can use just to send it so that you don't have to remember email addresses. But if you do want to remember the email address, it's mattsaudioblog at gmail.com, M-A-T-T-S audioblog at gmail.com. Or you can tweet to the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod on Twitter. In the meantime, I need to introduce our guests. They are returning once again, my tried and true panelists here. I look to the east and to the west for this, for my Sirens of a Song of Ice and Fire. We start by going east first and say hello to Susan. How are you? Hi, Matt. Good afternoon. Glad to be here again to discuss... uh more of the, these uh, very, uh, I'll just say very intriguing chapters. Leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and I look to my west and I see none other than Kelly. She's at Kelly Underfoot on Twitter. By the way, Susan is at Black Eyed Lily on Twitter. And Kelly, how are you? I'm good, Matt. Uh, yeah, I agree with Susan. This has been an interesting kind of downhill read from uh, the upness that was the uh, dance. So just a different flavor going on here. So I'm kind of in a in a weird mood to talk about these. So let's, uh, let's get weird. Okay, <laughs> let's get weird. Uh, that We need to shout out to Holly for that because uh, Hunt Pants, it's weird. And so is uh, these chapters. <laughs> Uh, let's start with just some general thoughts. I mean, you guys kind of both, I'm, I, I hate to say it, but you both kind of poo-pooed on these. You, you did, didn't enjoy it as much and why? Uh, Kelly, how about you? Oh, well, there's very few dragons. I don't know if you noticed. <laughs> it's, there, there's like less intrigue, less battles. There's a little bit of battling happening that was, in, in, you know, exciting, but it's a lot more I- intrigue and there's not a lot of heroes going on. It's just kind of, frustrating you know um but it it is still interesting and i'm just a little bit more in the same avenue that everybody was when we first started reading the the book and that it's just it's kind of dry i don't appreciate it as much because i don't see as many of the connections to our current storyline you know 
Um, I was the mm-hmm. same way on that. I was the exact same way on that. There weren't as many connections to the current story as you found in the dance. Maybe that's because when he wrote the bulk of that those sections, you know, they're part of the novella. And you know, he had more of that world in mind, whereas here this is more of a historical clinical exercise that he gives us through Gildane. Yeah, yeah. And I think that there will be more ties in, especially when we get like volume two. Like we'll see how a lot of this plays out uh, down the line and, and more consequence. But knowing that there's only a couple chapters left, it kind of just has that feeling that we're not going to get much like big conspiracy or anything super exciting. It's just kind of a little bit of an unwinding. But that could just be, you know, fallacy on my part for presuming that. So I'm giving it a chance. I just I, I don't see it right away, you know. Understood. And how about you, Susan? Uh, you and I kind of both agreed about how tragic this kid, Aegon the Younger's life has been so far. Um, that was the thing that kept me interested in this read, more or less. I mean, I know that a lot of this is about the hand, you know, it's about the regency itself. But at, at the same time, you know, when he goes back to the little kids, that's that's when I'm kind of like, oh, man, that dude, he's no wonder he's sad. Yeah. Truly, yeah, uh, and, and I concur with with everything that Kelly had to say about it. I, I kind of feel the same way, and I think that um, what will be more interesting when we do get to volume two and the part of his life that when you get into the children that he had are all, all interesting characters. So even though you know at, at this point in time he's just not that involved. I mean, you don't hear that it is more about his regents and what they're doing and. He's just there and then not really very engaged in it. And then I would think he would probably be a little more so once the kids come around and they grow up to be such interesting characters. And then, uh, you know, his brother and his brother being the father of Aegon, the unworthy and the build up to the black fires and all that that's coming. I think, you know, I, I guess I'm looking forward to that. And this does seem kind of uh, a lull before all that happens. Understood. Understood. Uh, let's go on then to chapter 20, Under the Regents, The Hooded Hand. Chapter 20, Under the Regents, The Hooded Hand. I mean, Kelly, come on, this is your, your favorite Lannister, right? Because he's all beat up and all this stuff. <laughs> yes, my favorite Lannister. Look at how rough he, of a go he has of it. But he does have an entire chapter dedicated to to his rule here. It's uh, it's very interesting because you normally get a lot of the small folks' impression of characters uh, coloring some of their historical like lineage, right? So even though I feel like it's kind of the other way here, where Sir Thailand is known or seen by the small folk to be super creepy. But you get Gildane here kind of just poo-pooing that and talking about how awesome, you know, he actually did at his job. So I kind of like that little reversal uh, of this guy who kind of, who is um, in a chapter of tragic ca- characters, uh, tr- tragic himself. <laughs> yeah, true enough, true enough. Obviously, he, in the previous part of the dance, he had more of a appointed role where he had, uh, I guess, you know, he was more opinionated and some of the things he did at that point in time, you could have some questionable feelings about. I mean, at this point in time, he does seem like more of just a victim himself. And the fact that he is willing to 
kind of let bygones be got bygones and, and talk about how he's not even seeing people as blacks or greens anymore and just trying to do things in the best interest of this king and the realm and what's going on. And at the same time, he is just besmirched and looked down upon because his appearance gives way to people being able to see him as sinister and talk about all these uh, you know, rumors that come up just because of him having to to wear something to disguise his uh, deformities from all the torture. Yeah, yeah, and it, it did definitely feed into everybody's perceptions about him, even though it seems to me he did a fairly decent job at what he was doing. Um, I don't know that you would call him completely capable, but he, he did the best he could. Susan, where do you want to go from here? What would you like to talk about most? Well, uh, I think uh, you know, starting at the beginning of the chapter, uh, we have the interesting stuff about the, the wrap up of, of Cregan Stark uh, with him going home and the dilemma of what to do with the Northmen. The fact that, you know, the, the whole thing with the uh, uh, widow's fairs and all of that that goes on. I mean, I, I, I found this interesting in a number of different ways. Obviously, we talked about the last time that we had a discussion about this, Allison Blackwood, Black Alley, the influence that she has on this rough Stark character. And she uh, comes up with a solution in that so many of his men that came south with him thought that they were going to die in battle and didn't anticipate going home again. That she comes up with a solution that there are so many widows in the Riverlands, especially from all these battles. And that uh, one solution would be that a lot of these widows could really benefit from from marrying and having uh, a husband around who can take up the tasks that uh, that they really need someone uh, to do. And so this works out to be a good uh, bargain for everybody concerned. And they uh, a number of these uh, Northmen go home to the Riverlands and those that don't. Uh, take up wives also uh, could be hired as arms, take up arms for specific houses and so forth. And the one thing that I thought about in terms of the other, the, our, our newer story in, in this regard is this brought a lot of uh, Northmen into the Riverlands. And it made me think about how that might influence them. It talked about how this kind of revived worship of the old gods in the Riverlands. And uh, I thought about how that might uh, influence their allegiance for the North and made them even more agreeable to take up with the Starks and their cause when Rob Stark came south. And, and basically, uh, when he became king of the North, it seemed like the Riverlands were very much in line with and almost a part of that. I, that's great. Uh, I didn't even think about it in that way. And that's a that's a very good point because, yeah, I mean, uh, as more Northmen have their influence on a couple of generations uh, or at least a generation that then maybe likes some of that stuff and passes it down to the next generation, that, that that's a great point. So, Kelly, let me ask you this. Does your name have to be Alisane to be a good matchmaker? Is that what we're getting here? here? <laughs> 
I absolutely thought of that. It specifically because I was like, who's this Alisane? Like making these little matches. I know another Alisane that did that because I always think of her as Black Alley. So it was like, I think that was specifically uh, put in there to remind us of of the uh, matchmaking abilities of these great Alisanes throughout history. It, it kind of comes up again and again in this book how these these women tend to have these roles of picking up after the the mess of war because they're the widows and we get to that a little bit later in this chapter too how the these widows are left to clean up the mess and even though Alisane's not a widow but she does have that same role as as these women do to uh try to re- rebuild in in positive ways like that and I and I like that about getting to see some of these female characters do that <laughs> It, I do always think of whenever I think of like the Riverlands and the North, um, and it's just a great reminder of Ned and Catelyn um, with these two characters and seeing them, rec- you know, uh, you know, join up as in the past this far, you know, long ago. It was nice to see and, and get reminded of the the love story of Ned and Cat um, <laughs> as the as these two kind of start their little love story. Um, it's probably super cheesy. I'm sorry. <laughs> Never be sorry for being cheesy, especially on this podcast, <laughs> ever, 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 ever. One thing I did want to point out, though, is that, as Susan alluded to, not all of the men were married. Some of them became people who trained the warriors and what have you like that. But another thing that I found interesting, although I can't seem to recall these being in any of the main story or current story, but some of them actually formed like a free sellsword companies, right? Like the Wolfpack, you had this Hallis Hornwood, uh, who everybody called Mad Hal, and you had Timothy Snow, um, the the bastard of Flintfinger. Um, the, the Wolfpack was made up entirely of Northmen and became their own kind of sellsword company. Uh, there was another one that uh, Sir Oscar Tully formed. There's our Oscar, our Muppet, and he... In, basically included men from every part of Westeros. They were called the Stormbreakers. Are those just two brand new names and maybe the companies don't exist in our current time? Maybe they've fallen apart since then. Yeah, there's no other reference to them besides in uh, the World of Ice and Fire. They come up, but that's uh, the same story. So yeah, I think they're just flavor um, and an option for George to kind of go back to in uh, maybe volume two or something. Gotcha. Yeah. They are mentioned in the world of Ice and Fire. I didn't, didn't realize that. Just by name, yeah. I think it's okay. even the the same story. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, uh, very good. What other thoughts do we have on any of this stuff? Anything? Of the Northmen? No, yeah. I I don't have much. Okay, uh, I, I just like picturing them, you know, kind of bringing their their northern hardness down to some of these southerners, you know, <laughs> and it's kind of a nice flavor. And, and that's basically a lot of all of my comments are going to be today are like, that was a nice flavor. <laughs> I understood. Well, go ahead and take us on another subject here of a nice flavor, Kelly. There's some storylines that kind of start wrapping up in these chapters. So you kind of don't want to jump around too much, but we get Grand Maester Orwell and um, the Dowager Queen Alice and Hightower. I feel like we just kind of follow their their storylines to their conclusions in these chapters. And they're just these flavored chapters that stories, I guess, that don't have consequence, but they are really sad, especially Queen Alicent's story. It doesn't really acute, you know, amount to much just yet, but as we go through, we can kind of see how she's quickly declining in her position. And it's just really sad. And 
you kind of just, we, I like getting to see these consequences of these women who outlive their children and what happens when they aren't, they don't really have a place anymore. Uh, so you had the coronation and the wedding specifically is where she's first mentioned. So Aegon three is married to Jahera, her granddaughter, and she's not even there. And they start being really kind of cautious about letting her be around them because she can't be trusted. Uh, Alicent, that is. And she even like tells Jahera to stab her husband and this little girl's like eight and she like just runs her way crying. So Tylen puts her away in, in her, her apartments and she's just there for the rest of the story. It's just, I don't know. I, Queen Alicent's storyline as it threaded through the rest of the book here was really sad. I, it was sad, but I, I mean, given all of the trouble that she caused, <laughs> I, I, I didn't feel bad for her for some reason. I mean, I, I do feel bad for the fact that she lost all of her children. Don't get me wrong. I do feel bad about that. But I didn't feel, you know, I, I did, it wasn't like kind of like you get what you deserve. But it, it was to me, it was just kind of like, well, these are the consequences for being that person. Yeah, and I think it's a kind of a highlight of how when you're not a warrior in this world, but your side loses, like how your life kind of plays out and Orwell is kind of the same way. And it's it's unfortunate to, I don't know, it's a cautionary tale, I guess is the best way to look at it. You know, if you're not going to die in a heroic battle or something, you're you're going to have this sad life if you don't win. So think about those consequences. Is it worth it? So, I, I, you know, I see some parallels with her and Cersei or something like that, who's, you know, I like thinking of where do our current characters like draw their history from and what would they be familiar with? And I would think that they'd be familiar with how things turned out for this unfortunate queen, you know? Hmm. Good points. I didn't come up with too many historical parallels with characters this week like I have in the past, but she was the one that e that even last time I was thinking about in terms of Cecily Neville, the Duchess of York in the, the War of the Roses, because again, she would have been somebody who saw the deaths of so many of her children and even grandchildren and had to live with the consequences of that. And I'm not sure that she took quite as central a role in uh, the warmongering as Alison Hightower obviously did in, in our story. But still, you have to think that these women who saw the impact of all of that would have to be looking back on that and reflecting of was it really worth what I did? And obviously in this situation, she seems to be such a bitter person, but she's still trying to egg on this granddaughter against the other side. So, you know, even though she may feel bad about what happened, she's still trying to have her vengeance. And so that's, it, it is sad. And, and I don't have any empathy for her, mm. but uh, it is, it's a sad situation. No, I agree. I, I didn't have much empathy for her in terms of like the bigger story as a kind of a continuation from the dance. I totally agree. And it's the same with Tylen Lannister, you know, like he was one of the first ones at that um, Green Council that was saying, you know, I didn't swear anything saying that I would follow Rhaenyra. And so that was 24 years ago. Who remembers that? You know, he, he was the first one to, you know, really lay down the, you know, support for, for Alicent's I don't know if you want to call it uprising or, or usurping here, but her, her plans. So it is kind of interesting to see how these two characters ended up at the end here and, and getting to actually see the fallout in the rest of their lives. Because, yeah, they, they think they both die in this chapter, both from the, the winter fever, right? I think so. So it's kind of interesting that, you know, we, we see their 
you know, starting of their treachery or their at least, you know, questionable morals um, at the beginning of the dance. And then hear how they both kind of just pitter out um, as, you know, with their atrocities or, or what they're uh, plotting befell the realm. And they just kind of die to a fever, you know, <laughs> like, anyway, just the parallels between those two characters has been interesting to me, too. And uh, one thing you mentioned, the winter fever and everything. It's interesting. Uh, again, uh, George emphasizes or Gildane emphasizes how winter is extended in this world. Um, I know that there's been a lot of debate about the conclusion of, of the series, Game of Thrones, whether that means that the seasons will return to normal or not. I don't think so. I think that's a planetary thing. I don't think it has to do with the magical thing. But uh, here, I've got this quote here. The day was cold but sunny, Septon Eustace records. It was the seventh day of the seventh moon of the 131st year after Aegon's conquest, a most auspicious date. So that's uh, winter is, is still happening at this point. And uh, I, I'm guessing that would be July 7th for us, the seventh day of the seventh moon. Um, if, if their, if their first moon is the same for us as January is. Right. If they have a 12, 12 moon calendar, which I never know. I don't know if I ever read anything about that. Yeah. You would think, I think that some people that do, uh, more of the astronomy thing might know better than me, but I was just wondering if it is a 12 moon calendar, um, then winter is definitely still there in the July of that year. Um, it, it later it says later in the chapter that the winter lasted four years, and is one of the more bitter winters in Westeros history. So um, I don't know. I, I'm not saying that Old Nan got any stories from this particular winter because she liked to go way back to the to the big one to, to scare the bejesus out of Bran. But um, it just it's interesting to me that as far as we know the at, at this point in history the white walkers aren't really doing too much i mean i guess george could fill some of that in later but it, it just seems a lot of people associate the winter with the white walker magic and i just don't i think this is just a geographical thing or a planetary interplanetary thing but that's just me sorry to go off on that tangent susan what have you got for me no problem uh, I just wanted to point out the fact that uh, they have this very elegant or kind of over-the-top spectacle of a wedding for these kids. And it reminded me of earlier in the book, we had the Golden Wedding. And in both occasions, it's kind of coming off of a lot of battles. I mean, at that point in time, it was wrapping up after Magor and all of the battles that he had held, both with the faith and with his own relations over the throne and so forth. So now we're coming to the end of a of this huge civil war. And so part of having this huge celebration is to kind of bind up the wounds and so forth. And and so, you know, I just was thinking about that in terms of, you know, again, we're seeing this kind of pattern of them trying to do that type of thing to to make some healing happen. Mm-hmm. And so it sounded good. I mean, they were very... Uh, interested in the in these two kids but i guess you know the kids themselves a couple of kids who are being put up there as ceremonial heads but they're so young they can't really take their role seriously or their marriage seriously right but, uh, right 
Yeah. Well, I do like that you brought that up, though, because it does remind me of the television show and the way the Queen of Thorns was with with Tywin and and uh, and about the wedding uh, of Marjorie, basically the purple wedding. Uh, you know, she said more or less that uh, a lot of pageantry was needed to help people get over, you know, the the problems that they had been having, which was a result of the War of the Five Kings. So, um, I. I that I do like that you brought that up because I just that parallel just now hit me. Yeah, no, it's a good one too because I was even going to call out Mushroom's um, sentiment here when he's Gildane is mentioning how all of these people were coming for the wedding and coronation, but how like a year ago, like all of these people were fighting, you know, neighbor against neighbor, you know, the blacks and the greens. So how. Uh, Awkward. The situation was probably in uh, every, what do you say, wine sink and, and inn because you're just crammed in with all these people that a year ago you were trying to depose or kill even. So Mushroom says, uh, if only blood can wash out blood, King's Landing was full of the unwashed. And I just, I kind of like that thought because it was so, I don't know, I read it as if uh, blood could wash out blood could either mean relations like because everybody was so neighbor against neighbor or family against family in some of these cases like you know as everyone is intermarried and everyone is you know at some point related to their neighbor in some way over the centuries they've had to to do that so i don't know it's kind of like the idea like this idea of a wedding bringing people together not even being enough to wash out the animosity between everybody um in the in the realm <laughs> in the city yeah you know? yeah it's, it's i mean it, 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 like Susan said, it's two children, you know, they're basically being put up there like statues to just represent an idea as opposed to um, anyone having any true kind of feelings for them, I would think. Mm-hmm. And like by the end of this chapter, I was kind of just starting to take note of how many um, marriages were starting to be arranged and this one didn't even seem to be considered what the participants of the marriage thought about it. It was just for the good of the realm. So they did that. And I was like, okay, so that's for the good of the realm. And you don't really have many options in order to make this arrangement. So it kind of had to be. But then you have later on, you've got the other marriages that start getting arranged. And whether they consult the participants or not kind of varies. And how we started the chapter off with Lady Alessane or Black Alley, you know, arranging these fairs where people can choose their own partners. It's just kind of an interesting comparison between how these marriages are arranged versus how they play out. And it goes to show that maybe if you have enough opportunity, they can maybe learn from their mistakes because it seems like by the end of the chapter they're they're realizing you know maybe we should let the participant of the marriage decide <laughs> if they want to be a, a who they want their partner to be <laughs> yeah exactly because you know uh, Jaharis and Alisane they went against everybody's wishes because it was what they wanted and look how fruitful that ended up being well in a way kind of ended up being to start the seeds of the mess but anyway <laughs> but no it did it was i mean 50 years they were together 60 they were together a long time <laughs> yeah they both they, they both lived long that was a good thing yeah so you know any of the problems that resulted from their marriage weren't really caused by their marriage you know um so i think that that's it's telling and and they have this comparison even at, at the end of the next chapter to jaharis and alisane that it was kind of interesting that he kind of threw that out there on when peak kind of tries to make the the whole thing about how 
amazing their wedding their marriage was let's get another one like that like it's on people's minds and they they know that that was a successful marriage so it just seems odd that they then try to force these marriages based on their own judgment when the one that they're espousing as like the one to aspire to was done in spite of the you know advice of those in power around them you know exactly very good yeah susan do you have another point or do you want to talk about this for a second? Well, I, I thought one thing I thought was interesting was the fact that, you know, they mentioned that luckily they have a, a lot of, of money for the crown at this point in time because of all of the gold that this Lannister had been able to sequester off out of the capital when the war was going on. And so they talked about the different things, the you know, projects that they start to take up. And um, I thought some of them were interesting. That it's good that they halted the progress on these gigantic statues of the princes that Aegon II had authorized, but they had already built their heads. So I was wondering what happened to those. I was thinking, oh, where are those giant heads at? Um, and, but mm. I, even though he halted that, the fact that he wanted to continue to rebuild the dragon pit, it's kind of, why? You know, there's so few dragons at this point. I'm surprised that that was a priority. But, you know, some good things, the, the idea that they were going to build granaries so that, uh, you know, they would have that kind of resource available to them and and that they, you know, put out loans to help um, uh, with people rebuilding and built some warships for the crown so that they didn't have to totally rely on the Valerians. So I think that there were some good decisions going on in, in some of the the projects that were being taken up post-war. Excellent. Yeah, the, I thought it was interesting. I didn't catch it the first time. I was kind of skim, you know, reading through this, and I went back and take my notes, and I like that he even put the granaries not all in King's Landing. I think there were three granaries, and he put one in King's Landing. Um, but he had them outside the city, so they were actually throughout Westeros, and I thought, hey, that's actually pretty clever, just in case something, you know, because a lot of this is also done with the uprising in King's Landing that recently happened in mind. So knowing that, you know, don't put all of your, uh, you know, eggs in one basket. He, he's showing some wisdom there, and I like that as far as the the granaries went. And yeah, like he got rid of Celtigar's taxes, and so now the people are should be happier and. Yeah, it was able to bring back all that money um, to King's Landing. So it does seem like they're trying to go back to normal. And all of this being done, you know, with this Lannister. And I just find that so interesting. This whole chapter is about him that he just, he doesn't really have any ties. It doesn't really mention him taking much concern with his his family, his house um, in Casterly Rock. Uh, but yeah, he's doing all of this for the good of the realm. So I kind of end up trusting him by the end of the chapter. His judgment. I don't see him as having any ulterior motives or conspiring with anyone. Definitely better than the the uh, one that's going to be coming up in the next chapter. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, I've got a lot to say about Unwin. Yeah. The loser. Nice. Uh, yeah. Let's see. I I want to just briefly bring up that uh, Dalton Greyjoy uh, is mentioned in this chapter. Uh, the one that we've known as the Red Kraken. We've heard him talked about a little bit before. The World of Ice and Fire tells us uh, uh, quite a bit about Dalton, which I won't get into here. But uh, we also learn in Feast for Crows that his claimed Valerian steel sword, once again, I'm going off on a Valerian steel sword quest, <laughs> uh, Nightfall eventually passed to House Harlow. Um, and it is currently wielded by uh, Harris Hallow, Harlow 
in our modern story. So there's um, the, the, the origin of it was, I guess, Dalton Greyjoy, but we definitely have seen that sword survive. It's another one we can use against the White Walkers in the future of the story, I suppose. Yeah. Anything else on Dalton at this point, or do we want to talk about him a little bit more later? Yeah, a little bit later, but I, I did like you mentioning that because we do have these two kind of turmoils boiling, if you uh, if you please, in the background because they're both on sea <laughs> and how they don't really come to the foreground until later. And I just thought that was a good call to mention that here it is mentioned throughout the Dance of Dragons about the, the Red Kraken and, and the, the quarrelsome daughters, but it actually has a payoff here. So I thought that was cool. <laughs> Yes, excellent. This whole section is under the regions, so we can talk about the regions a little bit and and how you have seven regions, of course, because they're in Westeros. But they um the, they name one woman and six guys, which is cool. But I thought it was interesting that um, Tylan Lannister wasn't included in this in the regions. He's just considered the hand, and then actually at this point, the protector of the realm is a separate role under this guy Leowin Corbray. So that was kind of interesting and how one was a green and one had been a black. So how this balancing going on, trying to reconcile the realm. But yeah, those guys weren't part of the uh, the, the council. And it's kind of, again, just kind of slowly in the background, you start to hear of all these conflicts or, or situations that whittle away at the regions. And you start with seven, but even by the end of this chapter, I think we're down to three or four. Three of the original seven are, are left um, in King's Landing by the end of the chapter. So even when you try to set up uh, consistency uh, with these regions helping out the king, uh, it ends up being unreliable. I don't really have much to say about the, the regions themselves. Uh, we've heard of their names throughout the book so far. I don't have much more to add about them. Um, do you guys have any thoughts on the regions, the original seven or the ones that, because um, I know the ones that come up later are more um, noteworthy. <laughs> so just of the original seven, I guess. Just that, yeah, you know, as you said, it's interesting, you know, all these different uh, events that are pulling them all home and out of King's Landing that are going on. Uh, you know, so there's, as you said, in addition to the fact that you've got battles, sea battles brewing on both sides of Westeros, you have these other little skirmishes or things that are happening that are taking people away from the central government of what's going on in King's Landing and back to their own realms where they need to deal with, with what's going on more locally. It seems to me that uh, a lot of these events were the perfect excuse for these guys to say, oh, that's that's my way out of this. Because they, they don't seem to, any of them, get along all that well. Yeah, that's an interesting take because the, I was looking up what the reasons were that they left. And you had Lady Jane Aaron was forced to return to the Vale because the Mountain of the Moons clans were attacking. And then you had uh, Lord Royce Corrin, who was forced to return to the Dornish marches. To deal with this, uh, late, you know, new Dornish princess, Eleandra Martell, who is styling herself as the new Nymeria. As, again, cool flavor, but not much to it as far as this text is concerned. And, uh, then you, during the winter fever, uh, you had a couple of the Manderleys died, the, the lord and his heir. So then Sir Torin Manderley had to go back. So besides that last one, yeah, the first two were more sounded like skirmishes. But you do kind of have to remember that this is all in the, the wake of the dance. And so maybe all of the forces in these places are dwindled or 
forces that weren't involved in it, like these mountain clansmen in the Dornish who have just kind of been able to build up while the forces in Westeros were just dwindling each other down. So it does kind of actually make sense that these smaller uh, issues would become larger uh, in the wake of such, you know, disaster to to these uh, lands, I guess. Then you had the sea snake. Oh, you guys want to talk about yeah, Lord Corlys? Uh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Here's the... Uh... The quote that got me about it. For all these reasons, the realm suffered a terrible blow on the sixth day of the third moon of 132 AC when Corlys Valerian, Lord of Tides, collapsed while ascending the serpentine steps in the Red Keep of King's Landing. By the time Grand Maester Munkin came, rushing to his aid, the sea snake was dead. Seventy-nine years of age, he had served four kings and a queen, sailed to the ends of the earth, raised House Valerian to unprecedented levels of wealth and power, married a princess who might have been a queen, fathered dragon riders, built towns and fleets, proved his valor in times of war and his wisdom in times of peace. The Seven Kingdoms would never see his likes again. With his passing, a great hole was torn in the tattered fabric of the Seven Kingdoms. I'm so glad you read that because I actually had in my notes to make reference or read that quote. I think I too was struck by that whole encapsulating his life and all of those deeds that he had done because it's quite it's quite an accomplishment when you look back at it. It totally is, and and I, it's weird how I can just get into uh, well, why did Gildane quote you know this this Gildane? Why was he so much more about this guy than he's given these kind of little epithets before uh, for other characters. But this one actually kind of emotionally moved me a little bit. When you think about all of the things that this guy did and, and it, it just comes off the page as like this Gildane must have really loved Corliss Valerian as well. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that way too. And I, I, I think part of it for me, part of it was the idea of, his wife might have been a queen. Their children were dragon riders. You know, the fact that he had sailed to the ends of the earth so many times and accomplished so much for his family. Yeah, there's some you know, wonderful, epic uh, accomplishments here. Yeah, yeah. It feels much more like a, a, the kind of tale that you would hear out of the Age of Heroes than in our, uh, you know, than, well, what would be for them a, a modern day. Uh, for us, it's still a couple hundred years mm-hmm. back, I guess. But Kelly, what do you think? I, I totally loved uh, how much attention w- was given to, to this character because we know all of these characters are long ago and they've all died in one way or another. In this story, we, we may or may not see that death. And since we, we were such a part of the sea snake's life here, it was nice to see his, his death get a full paragraph or so here uh, just to reaccount his his accomplishments, his life and in the good ways of it, too. Like sometimes you'll like at the end of the chapter, you get Sir Tylan's death that kind of wrap up and it's kind of shaded a little bit with how, you know, how history viewed him a little bit as maybe a coward. But here you don't really have any of the um, negativity that you would think that somebody who was on both sides, like fought for the blacks, but then ended up working with the greens and for a time and how he might have had like a little bit of a shade of negativity um, just put in there for even just for austerity, you know, just to be, a, you know, thorough. But yeah, Gildane chooses just to romanticize him a little bit. And I, 
you know, I'm all, I'm all for that. <laughs> I love, I loved, uh, getting to, to have kind of a nice moment for this, this character that's been, I like, I appreciated him. I thought everything he did throughout his chapters and through his, his, his arc was to try to achieve peace or try to achieve his goals honorably. And so, you know, I always appreciated his character. So it was nice to not have his, his final paragraph sullied with any of the, in world um, shade, I suppose. But uh, you got to read. Can I read uh, his his funeral scene? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So Lord Corliss lay in state beneath the Iron Throne for seven days. Afterward, his remains were carried back to Driftmark aboard the Mermaid's Kiss, captained by Miranda Hall and her son Alan. There, the battered hull of the ancient sea snake was floated once again and towed out into the deep waters east of Dragonstone, where Corliss Valerian was buried at sea aboard the very ship that had given him his name. It is said afterward that as the hull went down, the cannibal swept overhead, his great black wings spread in a last salute. I'm not going to read that last part because I like to believe it's true. (laughs) 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 Folks, read the last part just in case you haven't, because uh, Kelly's totally wrong about this. Um, (sighs) She can't, you you know, the truth of the matter is, is that uh, it wasn't anything like that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Well, only in that one detail. (laughs) No, it is. It's very poetic. I love that. That's great. I love it. Well, one thing uh, that I don't want us to forget to mention is the fact that the Grandmaster Orwell uh, turns up after he had disappeared. In the previous chapter, you know, he was one of the ones that, uh, under the, the Hour of the Wolf, had been indicted for his role in King Aegon II's death because he provided the poison. So he had uh, initially said he was going to take the black and go to the wall, but then snuck away somehow he you know got out so now here they find him working in a brothel and the fact was that he was there helping prostitutes to you know with with moon tea and various things but the reason that he's found is because of the fact that he was trying to educate a few of them you know, teaching them to read and that somebody uh, gold cloak uh, kind of caught on to what was going on and thought hmm, this is kind of suspicious so went to investigate what this guy was about and, and they put two and two together figure out who he was so he gets dragged back to the red keep but being that he had been somewhat of a friend of the lannister hand he is not put to death immediately he's sentenced to death but because they don't have a king's justice at that point in time, they they put him in into some rather nice rooms, which has the result of the fact that you know, he's around for a while longer. He gets to record a lot of his history, which has then been used in later times to come up with some of this information. So it's probably a really good thing that they they allowed that to happen. Yeah, and, and I just wanted to point out that the the brothel he was serving in was called Mothers, which I thought was interesting. I don't know if he somehow felt drawn there because it was supposed to be like a play on the, uh, you know, one of the seven. And he felt like maybe he could do some good there or something. But yeah, his story was kind of, you don't, I don't feel that bad for him because he, he did like say he would take the black along with all of those others who were supposed to die that day under uh, Lord Lord Cregan. So, and we've seen Maester Aemon at the wall and maesters can 
go to the wall and be very, very benefit, you know, helpful and have a life there. So it was just kind of odd that he snuck away. Um, I wonder if there was some other ulterior motive for him sneaking away. Like maybe they wouldn't let him take his confessions that he had already started writing or something. And he went back to go get them. And since he snuck out, he knew he would be in trouble. So he still uh, stayed away, but he just couldn't give up his, his life's work at this point, which is he's very committed to making his, his case for himself here with his, his confession writings, which are, you know, somewhat questionable in their, in their honesty. So maybe that, in and of itself is enough for us to be suspect suspect of his integrity and that he did just sneak away because he didn't want to go to the wall. But he's an interesting character and because, yeah, he was helping girls read, which is so unusual. We, we saw when Queen Alisane went to Old Town and suggested that women be allowed to be maesters or, or you know, septons. I don't remember which one it was, but how she was left, left off, basically. You know, they kind of poo-pooed her. But here you have a, a, a maester who's teaching girls to read and, and who knows, you know, I think that's just a sign of, you know, his um, concept of what properness is or something. But, yeah, he's a he's an interesting character because you, you do feel more sympathy for him because of his situation when they find him. Um, he's serving and he's doing his his duty in whatever capacity he can find like he's trained to be a maester and he's being a maester it just you lose a little bit of sympathy when you know he's supposed to be a maester at the wall you said you'd go there so it's kind right. of a back back and forth tough call to make a judgment on his character but in the end i'm glad he he yeah Tyl it sounded like sir tyland had um pulled some strings and maybe was a little bit shifty about <laughs> letting him live longer um for some reason uh in the uh in his in the cells because he he, he couldn't be the uh, the king's justice. A blind man would make a bad headsman. So we have to find one. Mm -hmm. And then it took two years to find one. Right. Like, right. Yeah, just kind of, I wonder about Thailand's motivation sometimes because we just really don't get any info from him. Like no insight into his, his thinking from Gildane here. So who knows? Um, right. But yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, I guess maybe because they were both in that, um, that original, uh, a green council meeting, I think, from way back when. Thailand was there, and, and so was Orwell. Maybe he had a little bit of sympathy for him for being the swearing that blood oath that they did with each other back then. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, possibly. Well, a maester's got to be a maester. That's how he got recaught, <laughs> right? I mean, a maester just can't stop being a maester. Uh, but just the fact that he was able to continue his confessions, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's how Monk and was able to have uh, direct access mm -hmm. to Oral's writings. And, and that's why a lot of Munkin's, I guess, true telling, is mm -hmm. that the one that he yeah. did? You know, that's, that's, you know, it's, it's based on, on firsthand accounts in a lot of ways. Did you have an opinion about uh, Orwell's character one way or the other? Because I was kind of saying that he, I approved of him, you know, trying to be a maester to these people that, you know, he was a maester to a king and now he's down here, you know, being a maester to these um, prostitutes and these girls, you know, teaching them to read. But he did give his word that he would go to the wall instead of getting his head off. So what did, <laughs> what did, do you have an opinion about Orwell here? <laughs> <laughs> well, try, try to bribe uh, your, your freedom uh, is not a very good uh, mark on your record uh, after saying you were going to take the black, but I think that at least as far as his mission goes, again, as a maester, you know, he put it in the right place. He was trying to teach these girls to read. 
Um, the whole Thailand thing about holding him off a little bit, uh, you know, maybe it was just because him, him and Oral were kind of like on the original Green Council. It, it's making me take Munkin's true telling a little more seriously because I was always just like, oh, Mushroom said it. Uh, but now with, with Oral's doing these kinds of decent things, on the other hand, maybe he was just trying to make himself feel better for the bad things that he had done. <laughs> yeah, like after all of his, uh, you know, machinations played out and it didn't go well. Yeah, they um, he does have a little bit of blood on his hands. Maybe he's trying to make up for it. Uh, I have to do this for Stephanie real quick. Uh, because she, at one point in our, in our series here had said that the diseases were really about the only thing that kept her, uh, interested in the book. Okay. Uh, so let's look at winter fever. Winter fever, as it was called, killed half the population of Sisterton. The surviving half, believing that the disease had come to their shores on a whaler ship from the port of Iben, rose up and butchered every Ibanese sailor they could lay their hands on, setting fire to their ships. Wow. Now, what we do know about the disease, here comes another quote. The first sign of the disease was a red flush of the face, easily mistaken for bright red cheeks that many men exhibit after exposure to the frosty air of a cold winter's day. But fever followed, slight at first, but rising, ever rising. Bleeding did not help, nor garlic nor any of the various potions. Packing the afflicted in tubs of snow and icy water seemed to slow the course of the fever, but did not halt it. By the second day, the victim would begin to shiver violently and complain of being cold, though he might feel burning hot to the touch. On the third day came delirium and bloody sweats. By the fourth day, the man was dead or on the path to recovery should the fever break. Only one man in four survived the winter fever, not since the shivers ravaged Westeros during the reign of Jaehaerys I had such a terrible pestilence been seen in the Seven Kingdoms. So what is this disease? Yeah, what it did make me think of when I was talking about the fact that I didn't come up with too many real-world comparisons this time around is I did think about the fact that, again, during the World War of the Roses, or when it ended, uh, when you had um, Henry VII take over, who was the first Tudor king, you started having bouts of what they called the sweats, the sweating sickness in England that broke out. And we still, to this day, don't exactly know, you know, like the bubonic plague, they, you know, trace it to, to rats being able to infest, you know, that the infestation was maybe spread by them and so forth. So with the sweats, we really don't know exactly what it was or where it came from, but it came about for a few years after, uh, you know, it's going on during the reign of Henry VIII, too. And the idea uh, or what it was often talked about or blamed on was the fact that when Henry VII did come and win the throne and the, conclude the War of the Roses, is that a lot of his army was made up of like cell swords that you know, people that had been criminals in other lands that had been brought over. And so they, you know, it was pointed, it, it, this is a case where it was said, oh, these foreigners brought this illness. And uh, people would literally die within like a day or so. They would uh, all of a sudden come up with this uh, sweating and fever. And, uh, you know, if they made it through the first couple of days, then they lived, but uh, a great deal of them did not. And so whenever 
there'd be an outbreak of it, then people would be fearful of travel and so forth to you know, try and avoid that. So that kind of reminded me of th- this reminded me of that when I heard about it. That's great thought about that, that, that maybe that is where he drew that from possibly. Um, the, the, I guess the significant casualty list, uh, Kelly had gone over some of it earlier, but um, Desmond and his son, Sir Medrick of Manderlees, um died of this. Uh, so, um, uh, so Torin had to leave uh, the Regency and Lord Westerling, the Dowager Queen, Alicent, and of course, later on, Tylan Lannister himself um, are all, and that's, it's only significant really because of, of who ta- ends up taking over. The four winter, it's called the Winter of Wid- Widows. Um, the four significant mentions are Lady Joanna, Lady Sheriff Footley, um, Lady Sam, the Dowager Lady of Old Town, and is there a fourth one? That's the witch. Oh, right. Uh, Alice Rivers. Yeah. Absolutely. So, uh, there you go, Stephanie. We've recapped the disease for you a little bit. What thoughts do we have on that, if anything else? Did um, Are you guys familiar with the Spanish flu? No, go for it. That, so the um, it's caused by the H1N1 strain of influenza. So I read I was just trying to find a comparison between the shivers and winter fever, and the this basically called the the comparison, saying that the shivers was more like um, the plague, like you were saying, like from um, spread from rats, uh, well fleas from rats, but you know when you don't know what fleas are, you just call it <laughs> you blame the rats. <laughs> but yeah, so the uh, the Spanish flu was a pandemic of the early 20th century caused by H1N1 a strain of influenza. So it's the same one that um, is associated that uh, caused the swine flu outbreak. And during 1918 through 1920, the Spanish flu infected approximately 500 million people and resulted in the death of three to five percent of the world's population, which is just numbers that are crazy. So. Uh, this kind of has that same comparison in terms of the um, the way that the fever kind of happens and um, the characteristics of influenza are, are comparable because also during winter months, people are more huddled together inside. So uh, the disease spreads, whereas the, the bloody sweats was an unusual symptom to throw in because it's not really part of the flu, but it's more like a dengue fever, it says. So there's an interesting article about it. And I know History of Westeros did like a two hour like live stream podcast about it. Uh, so on YouTube, uh, very interesting, lots of conversation about the, these two. I'm just it's an overwhelming amount of information sometimes. So just a quick little article was was very helpful too. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be sh- I'll, uh, I'll send Matt the link if you, if you want me to put it up there. It's got a bunch of the other Westeros diseases um, in their uh, modern world um, analogous counterparts. <laughs> Excellent. Well, be sure to check out Aziz's podcast and we will put that link in the show notes for this podcast. So, excellent. Where do we want to go from here? Well, how about the uh, fact that uh, with the, the sea, snow, sea snake, see, I don't know how I was going to pronounce that, uh, with the sea snake uh, dying, his heir, this Alan Valerian, who becomes extremely famous in his own right, uh, there was, you know, some contention for him being the heir because he was the bastard son or grandson, depending on which side of the story you want to look at there. Uh, 
but I thought it was just interesting to note that the people that were contending for the for the inheritance with him, some of them had been ones that uh, King Viharis had actually had their tongues torn out because they were contesting whether Rhaenyra's uh, first three children, the Strongs, were actually uh, legitimate or not. And uh, they, they made the mistake of, of bringing that up when they were talking about, uh, you know, the whole inheritance situation, I guess. And so uh, those people get brought up again that they're, uh, they make sort of a, an effort here, but they don't get uh, really taken too seriously. And the whole thing gets put down pretty quickly. And Alan is uh, ensconced in, in his inheritance and takes up the role as the new head of House Valerian. Yes. Yeah. Here's the question that I have. If you get your tongue taken out, how do you contest anything unless you can write? <laughs> yeah, I thought about that. I thought, well, you know, they were fairly highborn. So the likelihood of them writing, being able to read and write was probably considerably higher than the average person. So. True. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah, I think there was a whole conversation about does Westeros have sign language way back in uh, in dance or something because of uh, Wex, the Ironborn mute who was Theon's um, server kind of boy and, and ended up showing up in uh, White Harbor. And where everybody was just having this conversation of like, how did this kid know, how you know, convey everything to them? And they kind of talked about how he took him a while because he was gesturing and stuff. So that concept uh, reminded me of of Wex from from dance. <laughs> these trying to picture these um, Valerian nephews and cousins trying to convey their displeasure <laughs> with the with the uh, succession <laughs> through through dance, interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! No, no, no. But seriously, though, the, these um these people do end up being interesting uh, later. So it is kind of I'm glad you you mentioned them here because so breaking down kind of the hierarchy and and you'll see why I bring this up for later because it, it plays into something I was thinking about. Coralus had two younger sons or younger brothers at least. So they they're unnamed if you go to like any family tree. It just says unnamed and an unknown wife. But then they had these sons. And so his his oldest younger brother had two sons, Damon Damien and Darren. Um, and those were the ones who uh just went to, you know, kind of argue their claim. Their dad was the one, Vaymond was the uh, Corliss's brother. So he's actually named, sorry. He's the one who had his tongue his who uh no, he's the one who uh, Rhaenyra had uh, killed and his head chopped off and fed his body to Cyrax. Ah. <laughs> uh, so oh his sons, God. yeah, so his sons are Corliss's nephews, and they're the ones that um, Alan uh, forgave and reconciled with. But then you had the sea snake, Corliss's uh, younger, younger brother, who had five sons, and they had this, like, whole plot, and they were, um, they all had their tongues removed uh, with, uh, instead of getting their head chopped off by Viserys. So these are these guys. And the two of them were named, um, but it doesn't really say what happened to the other three, but the two, uh, one was killed during the, uh, the plot to get to kill uh, Alan. And then uh, the other one was uh, captured and his name was Rogar and he's named and he gets sent to the wall. So it's interesting if we'll see him later, but he's a, he's a Valerian that's up at the wall now. But as far as the uh, the cousins, the the two um, Vaymond uh, Cyrix food, uh, <laughs> his sons <laughs> were um, other ones that kind of will come up again later. So the winter of the widows. Did you have more to say about them, or was you just kind of pointing out that they were 
flavor stories in this chapter. Well, I, I enjoyed uh, a little bit of the tales of each of them. For instance, uh, Lady Joanna, she was the widow of Casserly Rock. Um, she ruled all of the domains of House Lannister for her younger son, uh, Lorien. She had appealed time and time again to Aegon III's hand. I guess that was uh, Tylan's twin uh, for aid against the, the Reavers. That was, of course... Uh, Dalton Greyjoy and all of that, and and none had been forthcoming. Um, but she ended up actually donning mail herself um, to lead quote lead the men of Lannisport and Canterbury Rock against the foe. Um, now, in a typical uh, woman can't do that kind of way. Uh, it's alluded to the fact that she probably just carried banners in the battle. Um, but still, just to be out there, I thought was pretty cool. Oh, heck yeah. Like, this this ancestor of, of Cersei being, like, this warrior, if not, like, actual fighter, but having the bravery to lead these this this force was cool to, to see. It was just interesting that uh, this is back in Cersei's lineage. Maybe this is a story she knew about and she drew some of that, you know, strength from, from that history. I, I did find it interesting how she's not getting any help from the hand, Tyland. Uh, like, what is going on here? Why is he not doing more, do you think, in trying to not show favoritism to his family? Do you think he's bitter towards his family? Like, it's just weird that she keeps you know, entreating him to help because, hey, you know, you're in power over there. Help me out. Like, we're having a bad time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I wish we knew more about the relationship between him and his brother, which we don't really have much of. Who did the Casserlies or who did, who did the Lannisters fight for? Did they fight for the Blacks or did they fight for the Greens? The Greens. Okay, and now he's in service of a king from the Blacks. Yeah, so he's just trying to maybe not show favoritism or show like that he really is fully supporting the side in power now, or uh, yeah, or yeah. or maybe even squabbles. You know, getting hearing a lot of stuff from uh, the Black side saying you're already you're already the hand of the king. You know, we're not going to help any more greens than we have to. I, I I feel like that there's still a lot of stuff kind of, as you mentioned with the wedding earlier, there's still a lot of stuff under the surface um, that's at play here. And maybe he just doesn't want to upset that balance at the moment. That kind of shows a lot of wisdom to me. Like, it's sad that he can't help his family, even though he's in this position where he normally could. But he's just trying to maintain balance. So he doesn't, you know, that makes me respect him even more. Aw. <laughs> well, what about Lady Sheriff Footley, who is the widow of <laughs> Tumbleton? Um, she achieved a different kind of sort of fame by her efforts to restore that shattered town. Um, had the heads of the dragon Sea Smoke and Vermithor cleaned and mounted and displayed in the town square, where travelers paid good coin to view them, a penny for a look, a star to touch them. I mean, yeah, man, turn it into a carnival. I mean, that's not very respectful to the dragons, of course. So I know that you hate that, Kelly. But I think, man, you need you need some money to build your town back up. That's a surefire way to do it. I felt like she could have done it with one skull. Kept keep Vermithor, but give Sea Smoke back to the Valerians. Like, come on, like that's 
That's cold. You know, like he was such a hero. Uh, was it Adam? Come on. Like, that's shame. Lady Footley. <laughs> Would the Valerians even want it, though? It'd just be a reminder of their, of that boy's death, of that guy's death. Aw, yeah, maybe that's true. But he, he wrote him so valiantly, and he did it to, like, restore his name. And it's his brother. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe this is just telling how the people in Westeros view dragons at this point. <laughs> but the one that I really like the most is actually, well... Uh, well I mean, Alice Rivers is obviously uh, this this great enigma, but Lady Sam, uh, she rides her horse into the starry sapped. <laughs> uh, here, quote, when he demanded to know her purpose, Lady Sam replied that whilst he had forbidden her to set foot in the sept, because, you know, she was uh, the paramour to her, her former husband's son, uh, he had said not about her horse's hooves. Then she commanded her knights to bar the doors. If the sept was closed to her, it would be closed to all. Though he quaked and thundered and called down maledictions upon the harlot on a horse, in the end, the high septon had no choice but to relent. I mean, that's that's just, that's awesome. It's like, you're not going to tell me what to do. I love that. <laughs> It's definitely showing more of her character than we got previously, which was kind of more just speculation that she was loath to give up her position as the lady of Old Town, basically. So this made me believe even more so that she was basically just using the the, the new lord as a puppet <laughs> and kind of maybe nicely tricked him out of going to war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, Alice Rivers... Yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Susan. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm a fan of her, too, uh, and, and what she continues to do. And even, I think in the previous, when they first uh, talked about the two of them getting together, there was a little bit of information about further on, they end up having you know, quite a brood of children together that are you know, later legitimized when they actually do get to marry when there's a new septum or something. So, yeah, I, I like that. I like her a lot. Go ahead with uh, with Alice Rivers. She's the yeah. character. Yeah, uh, she she says that the baby that she has is Amon's when they when they come to approach her, which is uh, pretty awesome. Uh, but here's uh, here's the quote from the book: "What happened next remains a matter of some dispute. Some say that Alice Rivers merely raised a hand, and Sir Regis began to scream and clutch his head until his skull burst apart, spraying blood and brains." Others insist the widow's gesture was a signal at which some crossbowmen on the battlements let fly a bolt that took Sir Regis through the eye. Mushroom, who was hundreds of leagues away, had suggested that perhaps one of the men on the walls was skilled in the use of a sling. Soft lead balls, when slung with sufficient force, have been known to cause the sort of explosive effect that Grove's men saw and attributed to sorcery. Um, so there's that. Um, I don't know. I like to think that she just turned her hand and his head explode, but, uh, she ends up sending a captive messenger who, uh, tells the survivors of, of the battle that she has a dragon. Um, and someone laughs and, uh, this is the quote. The name of this messenger is lost to us along with the name of the man who laughed, but someone did one of Lord Derry's men. The messenger looked at him, stricken, then clutched his throat 
and began to wheeze. Unable to draw breath, he was dead in moments. Supposedly, the imprints of the woman's fingers could be seen upon his skin as if she had been in the room choking him. So it's, it's kind of like glamours, all of this other stuff. Um, whether she has a dragon or not, who knows uh, at this point. But uh, this woman definitely is more than someone who just dabbles in potions, as Gildane had put earlier. Right. Yeah. And she's another character that uh, uh, History of Westeros went into at great length. Uh, I can't remember if the podcast was... I mean, they, they have a whole series of ones on, on uh, blood and fire, so I can't remember if it was specifically about her or, or it was a group of people. Uh, but, uh, yeah, talking about, you know, what, what could this be, what's going on? And then uh, last week I had a kind of a Twitter conversation with Taryn the Black on Twitter that uh, he's involved with their online face group, and then apparently there's been some discussions over there about if there might be some sort of connection between her and and uh, Blood Raven, then I, I couldn't really understand how that could happen, other than the fact that they're both kind of from the Riverlands and with something to do with them both being magical and and so forth. But anyways, she is quite a character, and I think that there's still quite a lot of mystery about you know what's going on here, what's with this dragon, what's with her abilities, what's what's happening. Especially what you were saying, Susan, like with this mystery about her. Um... And any connections that she'll have, I think she's just complete, 100% designed this way to be mysterious, with especially with how it ends in that that um, story of the messenger's death and how the you know word gets back to King's Landing, but before they can even retaliate, they uh, have to deal with the winter fever. So it's totally just left dangling uh, for for you know lush with possibilities that could. Uh, come out of this because she's still there she's still at Harrenhal with her outlaws and uh who knows what will happen there but um and I, I'm gonna sound foolish if it's written somewhere in like the world of ice and fire or something but I'm forgetting something but I'm excited to read about it <laughs> yeah I don't I don't think it is so it does make you hope that it's going to be taken up in blood and fire too in some way so that we learn more about this son of hers and you know what what the outcome is of their story yeah, and and the sun. Um, sometimes uh, I think that some theories say that when um, the the messenger said she has a dragon, that he's seen it. It's hard to say whether that's metaphorical, like she has this child who is a dragon, um, and somehow this messenger maybe looked into the flames and saw it. Like some of her her glamours mm-hmm. and and sound like they're a little melisandre um, with her uh, um, somebody being killed right in front of other people and not seeing the murderer. Um, right. kind of kind of stuff. So maybe he looked into the flames and saw a dragon. Like maybe it's something like along those lines. Um, but yeah, I'm just I'm curious about this this son specifically um, that she has because it the text says um, when they um, find it specifically because the wording is what's confusing to me. And I want you guys to maybe help me uh, clarify. Uh, so. When Sir Regis demanded to speak to their lord, a woman emerged to treat with him with a child beside her. Which makes me picture, like, a, at least a three or four-year-old, you know? Like, if he's beside her, I'm picturing he's standing on his own. Um, and I just did some quick mathematics. And <laughs> um, if she was pregnant, um, it said she was pregnant at the um, 
the battle over the god's eye with uh, Damon and Caraxes against Amond and Vagar. Uh, she was she arrived with them and was already described as pregnant at that time, and that was in 130 AC. So I, I feel like this kid can't be more than two, maybe um, two and a half at most. Uh, but yeah, she's pregnant still at that battle. She needs at least a month, another month or so before she gave birth and I don't know just I'm maybe I'm just reading too much into that uh, that just made me suspicious of this kid's uh actually mm -hmm. being the uh the the heir that she's referring to and uh or at least even the son that she's referring to uh like even Eamon being the father specifically or even her being the mother specifically so mm. I'm I'm just curious about that um well and another thing to take into if, if when we first meet her, she is basically just a wet nurse for everybody, right? Oh, yeah. It's her, at so, least that was her job at the beginning, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, getting access to kids might not have been that difficult. She may yeah. have even lost um, Eamon's child, for all we know, at this point. Mm -hmm. Or there's been a switcheroo or something, yeah. I, I'm, And I think it's been said that she... That the the children born either to her or around her were all like misshapen or something like that. Um, hmm. on, yeah, there was something un, unnatural about the births around her. So my, I'm even more suspicious of that she gave birth to a healthy boy um, who's, you know, walking at age, you know, walking outside to treat with uh, an army or, or tiny force of like, a, I think it was like 100 men um, at the age of two. So just curious uh, inconsistencies that are probably just there to make us have questions. But uh, the real, the real mystery obviously is the, uh, is the magic that she's uh, seems to have and the, um, the dragon that she says that she has. So. <laughs> we never so even get any description of this child, do we, that can be, you know, give us a feel of whether they had an, a Targaryen look to them. No, it's just described as a um, a child, I guess. It... Which is odd, right? Because there's all of these, you know, people around. So, um, and all of these, and there's at least six hundred souls within the castle. So it's just interesting that they were um, not, you know, the word of this isn't as abundant as uh, as you'd expect if if she were telling the truth, or maybe there's more going on that they're building up towards that we'll find out in volume two. <laughs> It's a good point, though, because I really, I didn't even question it. I just assumed this was the child of the two of them, whether, I mean, when she says that it was a legitimate child and they were married, I kind of questioned that. But but now that you bring that up, uh, without a description of the kid, uh, I don't know what to think. Maybe we'll find out more. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> put a pin in it, Matt. <laughs> we will put a pin in it for now, though. Speculations abound, but no evidence one way or the other. Well, actually, you did find a little bit of evidence there, Kelly, so we got to look at that. And I suppose we do need to put a pin in this conversation for now. We didn't even get through one chapter after an hour and 15 minutes or close to. But we will return next week where we will finish up our discussion of this particular chapter under the Regents, the Hooded Hand, and then we'll move on to chapter 21 as well so just a few more weeks of our read left remember you can always leave feedback by sending emails to matt's audioblog at gmail.com that's m-a-t-t-s audioblog at gmail.com or you can tweet to 
at the letter B, the number four, the Dragon Pod on Twitter with any of your thoughts about any of these chapters. We'd love to hear from you about those. Or if you just want to contact Kelly or Susan, you can find Kelly at Kelly Underfoot, K-E-L-L-Y Underfoot on Twitter. Or you can find Susan, our Song of Ice and Fire Siren from the East, at Black Eyed Lily, one L in Lily. So we'll see you next time when we continue our discussion. Take care. Send tweets to the letter B, the number four, the dragon pod, and send emails to mattsaudioblog at gmail.com. Thank you.